Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. My guest today is Sri Ram Madhav. Ram Madhav ji is an Indian politician who was a former National General Secretary of the BJP. He also is one of the founding governors on the board of governors of the India Foundation, one of the premier think tanks in India. And he's a member of the National Executive of the RSS. But today we're here to talk about Ram Madhav ji's latest book, The Hindutva Paradigm. Integral Humanism and the Quest for a Non-Western Worldview. Ramadaji, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Kushalji. It's my pleasure. I know that your podcast is uh, very popular. I'm happy to be with you on this podcast today. Thanks a lot. It's my personal honor, sir. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. But, sir, I was... I have a rule. I always ask this question to each and every author when they come and discuss their book. So I have two questions to, for you to begin with. Why did you decide to write a book on a very specific subject? And and the name really, I mean, I was telling you before we just uh, went online, you know, when we were offline, the name really intrigued me. So, so can you give us in, uh, a brief introduction into why this name and why did you decide that, okay, I need to write a book about you know, the, the views of uh, Deendayal Upadhyayaji at, at this very particular time? Look, many people think that we are idiots. <laughs> we don't have any thinking. We only are, you know, sloganeering people. We don't have any big uh, thought behind our entire movement. The very idea of using that word paradigm was to convey that after all, the Hindutva movement has a big thinking thought process behind it. What Hindutva came to be associated with in the last few, I would say few decades, is uh, some political activity, some agitations. For those who criticize us, it's about you know opposing this religion, that religion, this community, this community. I wanted to dispel that uh, that myth about Hindutva, that wrong understanding about Hindutva, and say that no, it's a very paradigmatic uh, uh, you know thought uh, which inspires or motivates people associated with this movement. Having said it, Kushalji, I must mention that this is uh, this kind of uh, you know some kind of. A, you call it clarification or clarity is required, not only for our adversaries, I would say for our own followers. They also should know that it is not just about some government or some political party or some, uh, you know, winning election or losing election. It's about a major transformative idea. The whole movement is based on certain very profound ideas which Dindalji had articulated in the form of integral humanism. But even that integral humanism, that uh, idea, the source or the root of that idea, again, is uh, the Hindu idea, Hindu philosophy, Hindu you know, thinking. Now, about that first word, Hindutva, why I use Hindutva? One is, of course, people easily understand that it is something to do with uh, the Indian right movement. That's one uh, reason. Secondly, as far as we are concerned, we don't differentiate between Hindutva and the Hindu philosophy. For us, both are one and the same. And even if someone wants to call it Sanatana Dharma or Indian religion, Indic religion, Indic philosophy, whatever. See, these names, all of them represent the same idea. So, Hindutva, as we understand as Hinduism, is what this whole paradigm is all about. 
and we all stand committed to that paradigm only we have not created any separate ideology that's the whole purpose behind naming this book as hindutva paradigm Right, so, so that's a very fascinating way of looking at it because it, it takes me back to Savarkar's version. So, so Vinayak Damodar Savarkar's version was that you know Hinduism is in the spiritual realm and Hindutva maybe in the material realm where we we talk about rights and we talk about. So, so obviously your take is slightly. Uh, uh, would I qualify that to be a slight deviation from that uh, Savarkarite version, or it is maybe an expansion of that itself? No. beauty of uh, hindu philosophy is uh, uh, it fits many shapes and many sizes savarkars was one shape there were many others who interpreted uh, hindu philosophy in their own uh, different ways for example your podcast is called charvaka podcast charvaka was one great philosopher of the 9th 10th century bce before christ who had presented a totally different version of the philosophy here Buddha had a different take on uh, the the ancient Indian philosophy. See, Hinduism is a, a very flexible, very open-ended, very continuously evolving thought process. In that, of course, Savarkar had an interpretation, which is not uh, uh, very much removed from the core philosophy, but it is not the whole thing. Again. and when i say this i am not even claiming that what i said is the entire thing the day i say that i am doing injustice to hindu philosophy hindu philosophy as uh, mahatma gandhi always used to say is uh, satya ki nirantar khoj an eternal search for the truth is what is uh, hindu philosophy all about okay i did not use or i am not i am trying to refrain from using the word hinduism because in our understanding isms again are closed uh, schools of philosophy are school closed fields uh, schools of thought whether it is communism or it is capitalism or it is uh, uh, any otherism they are all very closed set of ideas whereas hindu philosophy is never a closed one it's a very open very inclusive very egalitarian and ever evolving philosophical thought so your question about savarkar was savarkar tried to give an interpretation he tried to give some kind of a straight jacketed definition to it one who considers uh, this land as pitrubhumi and punyabhumi mm-hmm. that's what his definition was savai hindu ruti spruta he said they only can be called hindus but uh, you know many don't consider this land as pitrubhumi they consider it as matrubhumi motherland so yes. there can be many definitions but the core philosophy core ideas they remain common to all these interpretations gandhi's interpretation of hinduism was different from that of savarkar but gandhi throughout his life was branded by all his adversaries as a as a sanatani hindu he himself always introduced himself him as a sanatani hindu so hinduism allows that flexibility for different interpretations that that that's indeed very true sir so but i wanted to ask you this question from a from a writer's perspective now when you are trying to encapsulate the thoughts of a person now i was very really interested like in the start of the book i i think it was chapter 3 yeah it was chapter 3 where you start with the baseline which is the four lectures of dindyal upadhyay ji now 
this is this is just me trying to uh, get into your mind and the process of how you would have gone about writing the book how hard what is how did you go about you know deciding okay i need to keep this part and i need to maybe maybe i don't need to share this part how does one go about that process how tough was that process of encapsulating the thoughts of a person and a personality as you know large and famous as dindyal upadhyay ji and then you know and especially i was intrigued by the four lectures because you you create the baseline from what i have understood in the book is from the four lectures you pick them up and then you go theme wise in the in the later half of the book but how did you go about it i i was just fascinated ki क्योंकि जब एक किसी किसी व्यक्ति या किसी एक एक पर्सनालिटी के बारे में हम अगर चर्चा करते हैं तो बहुत कठिन हो जाता है सो आई 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 फाउंड द सेम थिंग व्हेन आई स्पोक टू विक्रम संपत आई आस्क विक्रम कि हाउ डिड यू डिसाइड यू नो हाउ डू यू गो अबाउट एंड इन द केस ऑफ दीनदयाल उपाध्याय जी आल्सो बिकॉज ऑफ द शॉर्ट यू नो एज यू नो ही ही डाइड एट अ वे अनफॉर्चूनेटली एट एट अ वेरी यंग एज सो द मटेरियल आल्सो वाज नॉट दैट डिटेल्ड मेबी एज द लाइफ ऑफ गांधी जी और अंबेडकर और सावरकर वेयर यू नो दे लिव फॉर अ लॉन्ग टाइम एंड देयर वाज सो मच मटेरियल देयर सो हाउ वाज द प्रोसेस इन योर केस दिस बुक इज मोर अबाउट हिज इंटीग्रल ह्यूमनिस्ट फिलॉसफी व्हिच एज यू राइटली सेड ही प्रोपोंडेड टुवर्ड्स द एंड ऑफ हिज लाइफ in 65 he tried to structurally present it in a structured manner and uh, in two years time he had met with a non timely death so he could not fully develop this philosophy into yeah. a well uh, you know argued uh, thesis or whatever but in dindal ji's other writings which you will find in the complete works of dindal upadhyay you find many ideas which may not be applicable to the present times are may not probably be relevant today you know for example at one point dindal says that the english educated people are all you know uprooted people from our culture and all uh, so english essentially uproots you from your culture maybe it was relevant at the time of independence even then i don't know but uh, because people like arbindo ghosh neta subhash chandra bose all of them were english educated i mean many more uh, but he had a view on english i mentioned it in in my book that maybe we don't have to take that proposition now in 2021 or 21st century similarly some of his economic ideas may be relevant at the time of our independence but seven decades down the line some of them need not be taken as uh, you know as uh, very relevant to today's uh, context so when i looked at his four lectures i looked at them from their very fundamental principles how they can be applied to the 21st century if dindyal were alive today what would he be saying now this requires some amount of intellectual honesty i'm not uh, trying to praise myself but generally i'm putting a point across here that if you look at gandhi since you mentioned about gandhi yes you are right gandhi had long years i mean many decades to continuously write about things but do you know at one point gandhi clearly says look if you find what i wrote in 1915 to be different from what i wrote in 1945 or spoke in 1945 take the latest because over the, in my journey probably i have learned more things have matured more so take my latest ideas i see that as an intellectual honesty of a person you know many times we try to defend our past statements you need not you should simply accept that okay at the time i said it so 
in dindarji's case he did not have that kind of an opportunity obviously he died in early 1968 but when i wrote about it i tried to make sure that uh, if he were here how, how would he have looked at these things in the present context so from that point of view certain things i said probably not very relevant but those which are relevant we can probably uh, use them and develop them and then apply them to the present situation so it was an exercise in that i needed to maintain uh, that decorum i needed i should not be seen as you know negating any of his uh, core ideas but at the same time if certain things are not very relevant today we can keep them aside that is the kind of approach i took while writing this book so so this is fascinating you just mentioned right, about the, using the analogy of what gandhi ji said i mean just think about it today in the age of social media i mean you're there on twitter i'm there on twitter people take out tweets of 10 years ago and they say tumne 10 saal pehle ye tweet kiya tha so and here you are in fact and and i know because i've read the book myself and you in many places you you clearly take a view which is maybe not you know in agreement with dindyal upadhyay ji itself and and what i have observed as an outsider i'm not an insider to the rss you're an insider to the rss i just look at the rss from whatever information i get through the media or whenever i get to speak with people like you or some others and when i look at the rss it was uh, so there's another example recently where uh, sar sang sang chalak ji had said that yes maybe golwalkar ji had said this today my view is this and we don't have to agree with everything one person says now in a now i'm bringing it back to the rss because that goes back to the enigma for some people that are it's so hard for people to understand that if we live in a house we don't agree with our own parents or with our own wife or with our own siblings but in the case of the rss every member from in the rss which is you in the uh you know in the national executive or someone from the past you have to agree so how do you respond to this this demand from the rss all the time that you have to agree with everything anyone said at any point of time oh, not really in fact you very rightly referred to the current rss chief's statement some time ago uh, that you know uh, issues have to be seen from the prism of uh, the present day situations you cannot uh, your prism cannot be what uh, something was said seven decades ago five decades ago like that there will be certain things which will be core principles you will not give up on them but uh, the application of it the manifestation of it uh, will be ever changing it should change to uh, to the times in fact uh, i authored an article uh, about uh, this very same thing this, this very same trait in rss and i incidentally titled it as glasnost in rss some within the rss took great objection to it why should we have any glasnost i said glasnost is greater openness nothing else <laughs> there is nothing else about glasnost so that greater openness which you see today in rss is i feel is a very good thing but i must tell you one thing i mean for through you to those who do not know rss intimately that there has always been this element in rss i know i have been an rss uh, activist for at least uh, um, almost four decades now and in four decades i have seen the organization evolving from time to time from chief to chief i worked closely with balasaheb devras the third chief he was such a revolutionary social thinker 
uh, he had strong views about uh, the place of caste or no place of caste in the society. So this was all evolution in RSS. But uh, what happened with RSS? Why there is this uh, uh, not even enigma, confusion about it uh, nowadays uh, is because of two reasons I see it. Number one, for many decades initially, RSS decided to follow a principle which we call in RSS as Prasiddhi Paranmukata. Meaning is that we should stay away from any limelight. We don't want any limelight. We want to work silently at the grassroots. The result was we were uh, simply staying out of the public gaze, doing work at the grassroots constructively. But those who are opposed to us or those who misunderstood us continued to propagate certain ideas, negative ideas about the RSS. That's one reason why this whole confusion happened. The second reason I tell you, this uh, even my own uh, colleagues may not fully like me saying this. When we decided to come out of that Prasiddhi Paran Mukta, decided to start talking about ourselves publicly, we started talking in a very past tense. Uh, as like you pointed out, you know, in 40s, in 50s, we had said it, so we should do it. So that also has fortified certain misconceptions about conceptions about RSS, but the core of RSS is like what is the core of Hinduism, Hindu, Hindu, Hindu philosophy, that you should be open to ideas, you should be inclusive, you should always evolve with the times, change with times, keep certain core principles intact and keep evolving. So uh, to, put, to sum it up, one was, of course, the adversaries have created an image of, about RSS, over the last several yeah. decades. But sometimes our own articulation has also resulted in fortifying that negative image. But uh, thanks to the efforts of last at least two chiefs, a uh, lot of openness has come in and a lot of engagement with outer uh, outside uh, outside uh, society has uh, happened. So now things are getting more clear to the people. People are understanding RSS better. All right, sir. Now, so you spoke about core principles. So let's get into one of them in your book, which is uh, which is a titled Rashtram. So the Indian concept of nationhood. Now, this is a very interesting thing where in the book also you, you use a very, you start, uh, obviously I have the soft copy Kindle version, so I, I'm not going to give the page name, but you start in a very interesting state, a very interesting way. So the Indian constitution does not call India a nation. It uses the word union in its place and obviously then you go ahead and uh, you talk, there is a there is a place where you know you have quoted uh India, i think where people seem to think that the center must be so strong that unless the center is very strong the provinces will always be an impediment in the way the center becomes strong that is the wrong view if provinces are made autonomous that does not necessarily mean that the center will be uh, will be rendered weak why what do we find here my view is that the provinces will be nothing but glorified district boards all these clearly show at the that in the hands of the central government which wants to override and convert this federal system into a unit sector it can be easily sung there is no danger of this sort of government becoming totalitarian now this is a very interesting way of looking at it because in india obviously there is a clear debate sir on one side they say the current indian state is a british construct where there was no sense of nationhood before that the britishers came they united the different princely states and after that you know they gave everything the british gave us you know they gave us democracy they gave us everything as if we were nothing and obviously on the other side there is the argument of the civilizational state which you obviously very artic you know you articulate in this book now how how does one 
explain this maybe and and if you could summarize din dayal upadhyay ji's views on this this whole debate on nationhood which is if you ask me personally it's a tragedy that in india even this is up for debate yeah exactly it's a big tragedy that we still don't have a clarity over our nationhood uh not as a criticism but as a matter of fact statement let me tell you the entire constitution which is the edifice on which the unity the oneness of this whole nation rests today doesn't call india a nation you know the preamble calls india as we the people of india their relation of india is people when india was to be defined in article 1 we only defined india as a union of states now there was a lot of debate in the constituent assembly over this issue many members tell dr ambedkar that why do you you know after all imitate the american constitution and describe india as we the people of india why not say that we the nation of india ambedkar had one explanation at that time he said all right it is all uh, very you know you can uh, fashionably call it a nation and all but do we really have that national consciousness in us we were fighting over religion and we got split into two we we divide ourselves on religion and caste lines language lines this lines that lines we are we are lacking in national consciousness we should build a nation that was his idea so he said uh, we call india as we the people but we will make a new nation here that's when that phrase making of the nation came into vogue after that but we always held not when i say not, not just the people of rss are uh, right wing people alone even gandhi and uh, even nehru what was his speech on 14th night that trist with destiny speech long suppressed nation finds its expression what is that long suppressed nation he was talking about that see everybody knew that it is an ancient nation it was a nation because of its culture and civilization okay politically we were uh, having different uh, kingdoms and different governments one person who tried to create one political entity for the entire nation was ashoka otherwise it was always into many kingdoms and all as you very rightly pointed out at the time of independence we tried to adopt the european idea of nation state and try to apply it to india european nation states are states first and nations next they created mm-hmm. nations around certain state concept a geography a clan or a ruler a king around that a nation was created or a language and geography created a nation but in india's case it was not a creation based on any one or two aspects it's a nation that has evolved over the experience of millennia you know simple question that your readers i put to when we became independent we proudly say that sardar patel had united 560 kingdoms into indian dominion yes. and pakistan dominion also got some of them but that means india was not one kingdom does it mean there was no india at that time we were still mm-hmm. india we were ruled by different people because that india when we say that was not a political or nation state entity it was a socio cultural civilizational entity this confusion could have been addressed at the at the time of our independence but for various reasons we could not do that but it is important that we remember 
that in India, European nation states are different from India's nationhood concept. Then I just take a few seconds to talk about the other ideas that you mentioned. You know, democracy. We opted for democracy. Uh, but Ambedkar makes a very interesting uh, you know, observe, I mean, statement in the Constituent Assembly. He says, look, when we are uh, adopting democracy, don't think that we are aping Europe. Of course, democracy has a majoritarian rule, is a European model. But democracy is in the DNA of India. This he says in the, in the Constituent Assembly. And he goes on to say that the Buddhist Sanghas always uh, were uh, run on uh, democratic principles. The parliamentary procedures, as we know uh, today from the European practices, were known to the Buddhist Sanghas uh, those days. So then Dindyal adds that not just the Buddhist Sanghas, even Vedic Samitis and Sabhas used to be run on democratic principles. So democracy we adopted not just because it is a it is a fashionable idea, it was a fashionable idea at that time in Europe, but also because it suited our DNA. And, you know, there is no better testimony to it that we have been the most successful democratic country in the world. A country with 1.3 billion people, a successful democracy, governments change at the drop of a hat here, and mature people. We have proved that even that European idea we adopted, we have run it in a most successful manner because this country's DNA is democratic. The only rider to it is what Gandhiji had said at the time of our independence. He said, democracy, there is no alternative to us. We should go for democracy. But in Gandhi's words, he says, to me, democracy only meant the weakest shall have, the, uh, shall have equal power as the strongest. That was his meaning of democracy, not the majoritarian rule. So Dindar says, democracy for election sake, maybe a majoritarian system, but a democratic government should be a government that built that is built on consensus. It should not be majoritarian. He says so. There is certain Indian idea about democracy also. Have we achieved it? A question. We still have to strive to build that. Uh, we have to build more consensus. We have to give more power to ordinary citizens of this country. That's a process. But broadly speaking. Democracy suited us. We successfully implemented it. All right. So, so another interesting excerpt from this chapter was where, you know, you talk about the the Dindyal Upadhyaji's concepts of the four elements that constitute a nation. Obviously, he says, you know, one is land and people. Then two is common aspirations and collective will. Three, a well-organized system of do's and don'ts. And four, a certain ideals of life that are common to all these people. Now, here's where the uh, rubber meets the road, sir, as they say, because the do's and don'ts in a country as diverse as India is where the problem rises, right? Now, just I, I, I am an ethnic Punjabi born in a Gujarati area of Mumbai, which is a majority Marathi speaking area. And this is where the problem rises. Now, now here's where I have a genuine query. And I have always found this uh, problem with many many uh, many discussions i've had on this definitional problem where when we say do's and don'ts especially based on the principles of dharma right sir but before we start about the principles of dharma don't you think it's very important to define what dharma might mean to everyone why dharma might mean something to me and dharma might mean something to someone else and when we don't have common definitions how do we have common do's and don'ts sir 
oh, okay, first of all, dharma should not mean different things to different people. As far as we are concerned, we have well-defined, well-interpreted uh, meaning for the concept of dharma, not the word dharma per se. Word dharma per se can mean many things. As a person, you have your own dharma. As a, a river has its own dharma. Um, a, 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 a tree has its own dharma. But dharma as a concept is a very well-defined concept. Here, since your uh, greater focus is on do's and don'ts, which is very relevant. I mean, it's very important for us to understand. When Dindalji talked about do's and don'ts, he was not offering any moral code. Please remember. Okay. This, is big, this is a big mistake many of our own supporters also make. He was talking about do's and don'ts as per the dharmic view. There are certain values. Moral codes are constructed by people. I mean, different people. There are what we call as Victorian morals, which heavily influence our thinking yeah. today because most of us are products of, you know, convent education. So, uh, moral codes are different and moral codes also keep changing from time to time. They are Absolutely. part of these, they are part of your constitution. Your constitution is your moral code. But what dharma talks about is not necessarily the moral code. They keep changing. It talks about certain eternal permanent values. For example, since you mentioned about secularism earlier, what uh, is our uh, dharma uh, view of uh, secularism? You know, for that matter, there is no one secularism in the world. The French secularism is complete rejection True. of religion, whereas the American secularism is complete respect for religion. There, the president, the congressman, everyone take oath in the name of Bible. So, uh, so secularism doesn't have one definite definition even in the West. But in our context, dharma's dharma view says, look, state should have equal respect for all religions. Citizens should have their own religion, their, their own worship, but they should not uh, reject or should not disrespect other religions. But state also should maintain a distance from individual religious practices. This is the dharmic view. Sarva Pantha we should not, we should have taken that as our secularism at the time of our independence. In any case, at the time of independence, again, I'm sorry, I'm going back to conscient assembly debates again and again, but it's a very fascinating uh, literature to read. You know, some people insist that we should include it in our, uh, you know, uh, that uh, fundamental uh, uh, principles of our uh, preamble of our constitution. Nehru comes and says, look, in India, Culture and religion overlap. So it is not very easy in India to simply say that, you know, secularism, we reject religion. It was a very sensible approach that Nehru takes. You know, for all that criticism that we heap on Nehru, he on this question took a very sensible view that, yes, we should be committed to respecting all religions. But if you put that word in the preamble, it could lead to a lot of confusion. You know, for example, in India, at the time of independence, we created Hindustan Aeronautics Limited. Is it secular or communal? Hindustan Aeronautics. Hindustan Jink. Is it secular or communal? So, here, certain cultural aspects get a little overlap with religious aspects. So, he said that we should uh, have a slightly open-mindedness uh, about this concept. 
Okay, in 76, we inserted it in our constitution, but that it should only mean equal respect to all different faiths and state should treat everybody with the same uh, respect, same yardstick. Unfortunately, um, as a society, we are giving up on that principle that we should respect each other. State is also giving up on the principle of, you know, maintaining uh, uh, same, uh, extending same treatment to all religions. It is discriminatory towards a given religion. It is discriminatory against a given religion. That is an unfortunate reality of our polity. So, so in that case, it did. Uh, it, this is a brilliant point that you make. It, this is a classic example, a very good poignant point to say this is where the Indian state has actually failed to, you know, do its dharma. The Indian state itself, by its very nature and its behavioral patterns, as you rightly said, that you know, it discriminates actively against actively against uh, religions at times. Uh, for for no, I mean. It, it's quite well known. We don't need to reiterate those points. But he also talks about something where I think uh, Dindyalji tries to define it or tries to bring it. He talks about... clarify that. When we say state discriminates, I'm not talking about individual actions of the governments. Look at our mm -hmm. constitution. Uh, yeah. We have articles that specifically deal with, uh, you know, giving uh, special provisions to certain religions, uh, etc, etc. Yes. You know, when you say that state should treat everyone equally, why this uh, whole concept of minority majority in our country? That's what I meant. Absolutely. You know, individual governments, when yeah. they do actions, they pay price for their actions. Yeah, we must remember it's a democracy. You do something, people have to appreciate it. So it's a process. But as a system, state has certain aspects in our constitution which uh, are discriminatory on the basis of religion or we make laws any number of laws we make based on religion that need not be the situation like you know for example temples in a number of states in our country temples are governed by state why should they, if state is secular why should they govern temples leave it to the community so these are the kind of things in which we can do better in terms of our true secular credentials sorry true. i interrupted now another no 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 sir no not a problem at all uh there's another interesting point he said according to his his concept nation is a spirit of feeling and an emotion and just before that he says there should be shared feeling shared sense of history and a shared vision for the common future for a people to emerge in the nation and I, our discourse has literally uh, a weird sense of denialism of uh, I have not experienced this. I mean, I briefly lived outside India. I have never ever come in, across in my life where I actually came across a nation where there is an active group within the nation which works full time to deny the history of the nation itself. Uh, very true. I mean, uh, that has been the problem in the last few decades in our uh, India's so-called left liberal discourse. You want to whitewash history, you want to deny the history of this country, and you, through that process, you create a sense of alienation in, the, in a section of our own people. You know, look at India's minorities, India's Muslims and India's Christians especially. Unlike uh, the minorities in Europe, in the European countries, these people have not come from outside. 
if you go to any european country there people have migrated from north africa or middle east arab countries and all those people they are treated as minorities there are probably people migrated from india and all whereas in india the so called religious minorities we created a category they are from our own stock at a point in history because of certain historic reasons they have changed their religion will mere change of religion disconnect them from their forefathers disconnect them from their history will the history change if you change religion today if i change my religion what will happen to my grandfather will he cease to be my grandfather so there the effort of certain distorted minds in this country left liberal minds uh, historians in this country has been to pander to a sentiment and in the process negate the history whitewash the history push history under the carpet and try to project people whom is muslim historians have written as uh, you know iconoclasts and barbarous rulers like aurangzeb as very benevolent leaders where is that need there are benevolent leaders in this country among the moguls also there are good uh, rulers uh, uh, among them there are bad rulers among others history should be history but you know problem is again what napoleon had said once what is history after all it is a fable mutually agreed upon if the rulers and the ruled agree <laughs> that becomes history so these historians had state patronage for some time in 70s and 80s it suited the then government to you know promote this kind of history whitewashing of history but today of course after all history is a very dynamic uh, you know discipline things come out based on facts people uh, you know appreciate uh, the history and true true things are coming out today so another point uh, before we go into the next uh, next point that i wanted to another distinction that you uniquely point out in the nlg's works is that what is the role of the state itself under rashtram so basically his concept of rashtram was the state is a subset of the rashtram the and he clearly differentiates between the two so could you tell us a little bit about that oh yes kushal ji actually i don't know it, uh, it might be your, the experience of you or your your own family some 50 years ago it was my experience as a child that the role of state in the life of my family or for that matter families in areas rural areas in india used to be very minimal we were you know in a way self uh, sufficient we were having you know our own systems in place we used to run our own uh, lives once in five years when elections happen that's when state used to come into picture from there we traveled to a situation where today everything is state controlled you in your daily life you come across the role of a state at least once every day that is not traditional hindu idea of the state i give you one you know interesting example in india we used to have lots of kings they used to have uh, battles with uh, uh, foreign aggressors all the time last 1000 years there were many foreign uh, aggressions and we used to have fights if there was no foreign aggressor attacking you you would pick up a quarrel with your neighboring king and still fight because you think that fighting is the dharma of the king 
Kings used to fight. But did society ever fight? Bengal's uh, Nawabs used to have huge quarrels with the kings of Orissa. But did Bengalis and Oriyas ever fight? Because kings would fight, but society was never impacted by those affairs. Societies were the center gravity of uh, cent, uh, the gravitational center of the society was not the state. I must tell you something interesting here. Both Gandhi and Dindayal both had supported the idea of a unitary state. Since you referred to federal uh, system, they both said for a diverse country like India, we better have a unitary state. That's the reason why in our constitution, we don't have the word federal. We're a unitary state with powers delegated to various units, including states and subsequently to lower units now through Panchayat Raj Amendment to Panchayats also. We respect the federal spirit that, you know, states also have an important role to play. But these people supported unitary system. But while supporting that, they insisted that it should be a unitary state, but it should be a small state. State should shrink. I can tell you today, allow people to handle affairs. They do things much better than allowing uh, you know various organs of the state to do those things why did we decide to hand over air india to tatas today because state cannot run it and uh, tatas probably can do a much better job what applies to air india applies to many more things in this country allow people to run their own lives they will do it better but that doesn't mean it is anarchy state Institutions at the grassroots will be different. There will be village panchayats, which are based on certain values. They are not, you know, just majoritarian because in a village, everybody is connected with everybody else. There it is more about unity, more about the village oneness. So give them powers. Look at the US system. There, a mayor is more powerful than an MP. Is it a reality in India? Is a mayor or a municipal chairman more powerful than an MP here? Forget about MP. MLA is more powerful here. So we have a system where power is concentrated at various levels of the state. That's why Prime Minister repeatedly, Modiji repeatedly says that it should be minimum government and governance should be maximum. That is the true spirit of India. Um, I don't know whether we can move in the direction uh, anytime soon, but that experiment, th that has been the reality of India for millennia. Right. So, so to another concept, sir, of India that I think is very important, and you you touch upon it uh, by using a very particular word that India you use you use the word chitti. You call it the national soul and Virat, the national life force. Now, again, this is this is another problem uh, or another point of uh, differentiation in India that in India there is one group that does say that India does have a chitti, it ha does have a national soul. And the other side there says that there is no such thing. So what was this chitti of India, according to Dindyal Upadhyaji? Very simple. Had it not had one common aspiration uh, that is uh, manifesting through its uh, value system, its actions, its traditions and its culture, India would not have been one nation at all. That common aspiration 
is what Dindarji called as a, as a, as the chitti, the soul. You go to any part of the country, certain aspects are common. You will find them everywhere. For example, a reverence for nature. You go to any corner of the country, you will find it. Because that is the DNA, that is the spirit. I tell you, you go to any remote village in Uttar Pradesh, go to the most, I mean, the poorest family in that house, uh, reach out to the oldest woman who would probably be an illiterate. Go and watch her morning prayer. She would start by saying Ganga Maya ki jai, Tulsi Mata ki jai, Go Mata ki jai. But remember where she ends. She ends with the prayer by saying Lok Kalyan Ho. Let the entire world be happy. Why is she saying that? Who taught her? That is the soul speaking. That soul is manifest through our value system, which we call as Dharma. Dindyalji mm -hmm. described that soul as Chiti. It manifests in uh, various ways in one's one uh, in a nation's life. To give you a very uh, very uh, not necessarily contemporary historic type of uh, idea, you know the Chinese had built that Great Wall. History mm -hmm. says it took uh, you know hundreds of years. I mean centuries for them to complete that wall. People say it is 3,900 kilometers. Some say it is 600 kilometers. It still exists, that Great Wall. Why was that wall built? It was built only to prevent the mainland China from being attacked by the northern nomads, the Manchus and the Mongols. May I ask you, in history, medieval history, aggressions on India happened through one mountain pass called the Khyber Pass. There were no aircraft at that yes. time. Khyber Pass. Why did it not occur to any Indian ruler that we should build a wall across Khyber Pass? Because it doesn't fit into your DNA. You never believe that, uh, you know, I will close myself from all sides. Okay, for security reasons, some steps you may take. But your thinking is, no, the whole world is one family. Vasudhaiva Kutumbakam. This is the whole uh, idea of uh, uh, this country. Indians are the only people who had the courage to declare the whole world as one family. This I'm saying uh, because of an important reason. Many others have talked about uh, uh, this uh, familial thing that we should come, become united and all, but based on a religion, based on a book, based on a philosophy. Whereas we Indians have said, no need. You have your book, you have your philosophy, you have your language, you have your culture, you have your country, yet we can be one people based on values. That statement emanated because you have a particular soul. That is what Dindalji called as the soul of a nation. When it manifests, it manifests in the form of the Virat. When that soul manifests, it does good for the, of course, country, for the entire humanity. All right, sir. Now, uh, one last question from my end, and then I'll start taking the viewers' questions. Now, this particular thing, I mean, uh, well, it is the Charvak podcast. So obviously, uh, <laughs> I am someone who has always been on more of a, I don't know, you can use it, laissez-faire, capitalism, whatever. I just believe in free markets. Now, now the, the one thing that I was confused by, I don't know how else to say it when I was reading the book, was was the economic worldview of Dindyal Upadhyayji. Because he does not say we need to reject free markets. 
but he also i don't know at least i i could not understand maybe on when when it comes to the economic front what am i supposed to do then could you expand on his economic views because a lot of viewers of the charvak podcast are also keen you know uh, very keen on the economic views of the rss because obviously on the one hand rss has you know the largest union in india i mean everybody knows about that and then on the other hand you also have this uh, view from dindialji in this uh, as you have articulated in the book that we should not we are not socialists but we are not capitalists at the same time so what are we then Oh, okay firstly uh, rss is not an economic organization so it does not have any views on day to day economic policy but broadly speaking what is the economic thinking of uh, the rss uh, it it uh, can be deduced from two words one used by dindyal the other used by gandhi both were, meant the same thing gandhi used the word sarvodaya dindyal ji used the word antyodaya what we always said was that any economic activity its ultimate objective should be the happiness of all gandhi ji called it sarvodaya dindal ji said happiness of the last man which is antyodaya now since we mentioned about communism and capitalism communism uh, found uh, answer to this uh, issue that how do you make everyone happy so rob the people who have something and distribute it to those who don't have it but you are making somebody unhappy so uh, capitalism believe that okay i cannot make everybody happy so maximum benefit to maximum number i'm just uh, talking in macro terms okay there are uh, much finer uh, aspects of economy i'm not getting into them so what uh, dindyal ji or gandhi ji or for that matter the present day rss uh, uh, thinkers stand for is essentially that the economic activity should be such that it benefits the last man what prime minister these just calls as atmanirbharata you know many people misunderstand even that atmanirbharata concept as if he was asking for india to be shut from all sides and you know everything we only do it no atmanirbharata meaning that's that is not the meaning of atmanirbharata atmanirbharata means the man on the street should be able to stand on his own feet for that purpose if you want to take support from all over the world you take it keep every side open to it but the mission or objective should be not just the gdp but gdp per capita i mean in t- very modern terms i'm trying to put it take gdp india is fifth or sixth or seventh largest gdp in the world but in gdp mm-hmm. per capita we are 152nd have we been able to make the lives of grassroots indians happy are they on their own feet do the effort should be in that direction so broadly rss view is this so in that yes we are not at all in support of the communist uh, economic model we don't see people as two opposing groups of haves and have nots which is the very basis of entire communist uh, economic philosophy nor are we in favor of the core uh, uh, you know capitalist idea that you know you should have full freedom so that those who are capable will uh, succeed and flourish in lives we say no that should not be the way 
those who are capable should make lives of the others happy that should be the meaning of uh, you know any economic success interestingly today that principle is accepted by one and all look at uh, the kind of charity organizations that uh, uh, the billionaires in the west create they create mm -hmm. foundations they create trusts and now they strive whether it is bill gates or uh, somebody else their whole effort is to empower the people at the grassroots that's the right way to go about it gandhi ji called it trusteeship you whatever you own what you use is for you but whatever additionally you own as profit should be for the good of uh, the the rest of the society so uh, we call it a corporate social responsibility today different names we use it but that is the core indian economic thinking and rss stands for that we are not against any multinational corporation or anybody else but we are for ensuring that the benefits of the the fruits of the economic progress should be enjoyed by the man on the street the last man on the street so 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 i i and i want to refine it even further here so so there is a very interesting concept that seems to be cropping up in the last decade and a half with the, which is called in the west is called conscious capitalism capitalism with a soul capitalism which is not devoid of uh, you know the uh any emotions or human feelings where you know people care for their workers people care for the environment and there are many people i think the the current ceo of whole foods in america also talks about conscious capitalism a lot of times so so could there be a situation where uh, we could also maybe uh look at those kinds of things or or am i misunderstanding it oh, why not i'm not too familiar with that concept that you mentioned i've not read much about it so i cannot comment on that but yes the economic activity should help the last man should help nurture environment uh, i mean should not exploit nature such kind of economic activity we should create look at uh, the tragedy that we uh, we face in front of our own eyes there was a g20 meeting in rome where countries which control 70% of the world's economy refuse to come to one refuse to come to consensus on protecting environment i mean controlling uh, emissions we refuse to come to one agreement one figure we don't agree and two days later we all go to glasgow and give lecture to the whole world protect environment <laughs> environment should be protected i tell you the biggest threat to uh, human existence that includes the environmental or climate related challenges comes not from people as much as from the states and their policies and states refuse to come to a to a consensus or a unanimous opinion as to how we can you know come out of this kind of thing because they are guided by certain communist or capitalist principles so easiest way is to tell people yaar yeah, you do it of course we do it i am not saying people should not do it but states also should do it so that is where indian thinking comes into picture we are for controlled consumption sustainable consumption we are for antyodaya the last man should be on his own feet uh, which prime minister calls as atmanirbharta all right so i i remember having a conversation with my brother once uh, you know when i was in america and i told him the one difference that i found in uh, 
in the western way of looking at life and the indian way of looking at life was uh, uh, the western world did not have santosh dhan which was i always found lacking in the western world view and india has tons of santosh dhan maybe a little too much of it i think we need to have a little less of santosh dhan and they need to have a little more of santosh dhan maybe we can draw a balance there uh, but sir now i wanted to because i am aware of your time so i wanted uh, to take a few can i just take one minute to narrate something which relates to the sure. of this land economic terms you know uh, last sure, year sure. when the covid crisis happened people started walking miles on our organization people uh, tried to extend some help to them in one case they found a group of people walking with with uh, you know broken uh, chappals and all they carried some bananas and some chappals you know the lady who was walking for three days uh, by then, he told them, okay, of the bananas you have, only give this much to us, keep the remaining, because behind us, after a few hours, another group is coming. Please keep some for them. When they offered chapel, she told them that, look, my chapels will, uh, you know, will, will uh, work for next two, three days. I will get chapels after two, three days. But in the group behind me, they may require this chapel. You please give it to them. This is India's approach. Even in crisis, even in trouble, you share. Share and care is the economic model of this country. That is what Dindalji called as chiti. It manifests in the last man, ordinary man of this uh, country. That should be the economic thinking, uh, broadly speaking. Got it, got it. So, sir, uh, I'll have to take a few questions uh, because I'm uh, I'm conscious of your time. So, the so first question is about your book. So, somebody has said, please request Ram Madhav, sir, to release an audiobook version for me because I like to listen audiobooks, sir. Any plans in the foray to, uh, about audiobook versions of the book? <laughs> I will pass on that request to the, the publisher, the Amazon uh, publishers of my book. Um, you know that these books, uh, they have certain rights over uh, these things. I'm sure they will be thinking in terms of releasing an audio book. There is a Kindle version available. I don't know if it has audio option also. I will check. All right. Okay. So, sir, so, so this is the first question. So, it, it starts with a comment, quite an insightful observation when it comes to the minimum government. And thanks a lot for that. How and when do you think we as Indians can realize the value of the minimum government? And what do you think are the major roadblocks you see in achieving this goal? And you have any time frame in mind? It requires a lot of political will to do it. Prime Minister has tried to do it by, you know, for example, doing away with the number of obsolete laws. Some 1600 obsolete laws have been done away with. Uh, the idea was to reduce uh, state's control of the lives of the people. Similarly, trying to bring about one common tax regime for the whole country is another effort at trying to reduce uh, the government's intervention. Otherwise, there used to be 20, 25 types of indirect taxes. Today, they were all subsumed into one GST regime. Certain, some efforts are definitely happening. Uh, the Panchayat Raj reform that happened in 90s was another example of trying to shrink the state at the nation and state level, and uh, union and state level, and give more powers to villages. But sadly, what happened was, uh, in, in the name of Panchayat Raj, we gave uh, funds to villages, but not powers. 
so powers are still in the hands of the dc the assembly and there only so it requires a lot of will power to do it because those who have to do it those who have to bring that big reform have developed vested interest in having more power in their hands so it's a difficult situation but i hope that under prime minister modi hopefully we will have uh, you know less and less government and more and more better governance all right so somebody has said obviously because we were just talking about the economics so somebody has asked isn't free market capitalism with least regulations the only way a country with our vast population succeed all other types suit small nations so what your view is what is your view sir uh, yeah minimum regulation yes no no doubt but it cannot be unregulated because uh, the very nature of uh, the economic activity generally speaking is for profit in for profit activity unless some kind of uh, regulation is in place it could lead to exploitation sufferings of uh, sections of uh, the population and also there needs to be some amount of regulation no doubt but yes broadly speaking we should allow for individual enterprise we should encourage the purushartha of individual i mean citizens of the country they should be encouraged to uh, you know create wealth wealth creation should be uh, allowed at or encouraged at the grassroots that's where more liberalism more openness less governmental controls is the way forward i am i am pretty sure if india is given that opportunity the kind of uh, you know market that we are as a country itself how people can do wonders if only you allow right. them to do that activity uh, they can do wonders i hope we will gradually move in that direction all right sir so so this is a question about hindutva and its compatibility with politics so i'm trying to summarize the question so somebody has said so when when we talk about a pan india hindutva how do we you know draw the line between a political and a social uh, situation where uh, uh maybe you know uh, let's say in, in the case of the bharatiya janata party you know many times in many different states across india the bharatiya janata party seems to have coalitions with people i i think even if we take bihar for that you know it's not like we have a complete agreement on every issue with many parties or even in the case of the akali dal i know the bharatiya janata party does not have uh, it's a, but this is not about the bjp view i'm trying to ask you a question the question uh, is more about the hindutva view so whether it is in kashmir you know bjp tying up with pdp whether in punjab it is bjp tying up with akali dal or in the northeast bjp tying up with different people how does hindutva look at this view does it look at it from the view of a political compulsion or how at the end of the day different people and different thoughts are going to exist in india and we have to build around that so how would we uh, you know how would hindutva look at it from that point of view you know first of all if uh... those who are asking this question have any feeling that hindutva is an ideology i want uh, to put that thinking to rest by saying that hindutva is not any any ideology like uh, you know communism or some other ideology it's just the hindu philosophy which we call as hindutva hindu philosophy in action what is hindu philosophy when it comes to this particular question deendal ji 
in his integral uh, hum i mean in one one uh, on one occasion in 1967 in uh, his last speech as the president or uh, first and last speech as the president of the party jansang had said had answered this question he said that after independence we decided to uh, put an end to this curse called uh, untouchability on the caste basis we made laws banning that practice and making it a crime but we developed a new untouchability called political untouchability is it right because we are so and so political party i won't touch you with a barge pole is that the right approach dindalji says no in the larger interest of the people of our democracy and of our nation if we were to come together we should come together we should work together for the good of the people that should not merely to capture power of course that should not be the motivation but suppose you have to respect a mandate or resp- uh, in ensure uh, good governance to people no harm in uh, people who probably don't profess same ideas uh, come together with the common understanding it happened in 67 samyukta vidhayak dal governments came into power in eight states in india they were all non congress governments in those governments in some states there were communists and jansang together arch rivals ideological rivals but they were together in those governments uh, akali dal and jansang were together socialists and jansang were together so Dindal in his lifetime experimented with these things and came to this conclusion. In fact, one uh, party leader gets very agitated and asks him this question: How can you do this? Karbuja chaku par gire, chaku karbuja par gire, tatayga to karbuja hi. That was his logic. If uh, whether the knife falls on um, what do you call it? Uh, um, uh, a fruit or a fruit falls on uh, a knife. it will be the fruit which will be the loser but dindal ji says no we should not uh, look at the politics uh, from that kind of a prism we should be able to work with anybody and everybody yes there were such situations in 1989 jansa uh, uh, bjp joined or worked with vp singh's government from outside it supported the government it happened it happened afterwards also and yes we formed a government with pdp for some time respecting the mandate in kashmir that is broadly the thinking of the hindutva school of thought all right all right so sir a couple of questions on education uh, a lot of passionate people again because uh, and and this is directly in relation to your book and it comes uh, to about the na- national identity so two questions i'm going to mix them together i'm going to read them so someone has asked ram madhav ji when will we see an indic narrative in our history textbooks i think it's more of a plea than a question also why doesn't the government make a, this is an interesting one why doesn't why, uh, why doesn't or should the government may, maybe make an in, institution or something of that sort to develop indian social sciences both astika and nastika also add them in universities importing western social sciences uh, is obviously having a harm on our society and we see it with all sort of you know absurd things that are being taught in in, in universities which are totally alien to us so so my question to you would be how, what were dindyal ji's views on something like this maybe on on how our education should be structured what should be taught or what should the kids be taught no on one hand 
we have been talking about a shrunk government, a smaller government. On the other hand, if you want even index studies to be instituted by government, I think that's not fair. We should ask government to get out of these things. Now look at the West. All the top-rated universities are run on public charities. Okay, they get funds from governments of uh, different states, provinces, or sometimes national government. But largely, the endowments are provided by the society. And that used to be the system in India also. Even when things were involved, they would only give some money and leave everything else to you know scholars and uh, experts. So whether it is Indic studies or other things, it is for the society to come forward and develop those uh, disciplines in a very institutionalized way, as suggested by people. What this government has done, Modiji's government has done, I consider it as a revolutionary uh, step in this direction, was by promulgating a national education policy recently, NEP 2021. That policy allows for institutions to develop their own curriculum their own courses you know if somebody is interested to introduce indic studies it gives that freedom to institutions today now it is for the state it's for the universities it is for the academic institutions now to come forward and develop uh, different types of uh, courses education area has huge scope for uh, experimentation today after the nep now please come forward and do that you can have an engineering course together with that one can learn political science and music or yoga it can be interdisciplinary pan-disciplinary approach the new education policy uh, gives that kind of a freedom now that has to be implemented uh, some amount of uh, effort is being made by government of course because education is a concurrent subject Central government has certain powers, states also have certain powers, they are doing it, but this policy gives enormous freedom to, you know, private institutions in this country. Now they can uh, develop good courses, they can correct distortions in our history, they can, uh, you know, uh, create literature, uh, then teach to students. Now we have to do it, we have to actually bring education and temples out of the total control of the government and allow for society to educate people, give values to the people. Absolutely. So one last question and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, obviously, uh, and you do talk about it in the book also and a lot of people have raised this in our discussion today. They, the, the issue of you know the understanding of caste and obviously you you actually share uh you, you talk about it in detail how you know uh, balasaheb devaras also you know has very strong views on the subject of caste and and again and i'll add one one line to this and i'll ask you sir is it a fair criticism then of the rss that in spite of being the one active organization that actually works in getting rid of these fault lines in our society do you think staying silent all these years, all these years in staying silent in front of the media, has it harmed RSS till the extent that you have ludicrous accusations against, you know, the entire organizational structure and calling them casteless when 
from whatever i have understood they are the one organization in india that actually active, actively works against the elimination of this problem the most so sir do you think this criticism is fair jab jaise maine aapne shuruaat mein kaha tha ki hame kaha jata tha ki kaam karo shant raho do you think in a way this is also backfiring because people act, you know accuse rss of such ridiculous things that are just next to impossible oh you see rss is very difficult to understand and very easy to misunderstand so uh, you know wrong notions about rss and its uh, its mission and its vision and all that it's our responsibility to remove those but uh, i also must tell you vishal ji there are uh, people who have such uh, you know misinformed views about the rss but there are millions and millions of people who are with rss they know rss very well so some people have misunderstanding they should learn or come closer to rss and know more about it but on that very critical question of caste maybe I, my views are a little more uh, i mean different uh, slightly different from some in my own organization also because i strongly believe that uh, caste as an institution has outlived its utility it should go today it is surviving only because of politics because politics breathes life into caste if you are a particular person from a particular caste you can become an mla mp you can even become a governor these days you can become chief minister anything so every caste thinks that my man should somehow come forward so caste consciousness grows because of politics today otherwise it's not serving any purpose sir today even marriages happen across the caste today it's not there in public spheres anymore ha huh. because it is being nurtured because of politics it is leading to certain divisions in the society it should go but my only my question here is how would it go dr ambedkar had all his life wanted caste to go he had even authored a book called annihilation of caste caste should completely be annihilated could he achieve it some people followers of ambedkar started organizations like jati pati todak mandal society of uh, uh, you know those who discard caste in two years time jati pati todak mandal became a caste this is the kind of social dynamic link to caste so we need to find ways of creating a different kind of identity so that this caste based division is uh, either removed or it is submerged we live in different identities we have multiple identities as individuals we have our professional identity we have our personal identity family identity language identity national identity religious identity guru identity this can be one more identity but it should not be all powerful identity for us so for that what rss thought was let culture become one identity that you know subsumes all different identities but if you want caste to go you need to find another institution to take its place there only uh, probably we will see a really caste less society uh, i won't be uh, an unhappy person if caste goes i will be a happy person but my only point is if it is a vyavastha it can only go when something else replaces it you cannot simply remove it and see create a vacuum here vyavastha means you need something else some other vyavastha there So that is how we need to approach this challenge. Fair enough. Uh, so, sir, I'm just going to read one excerpt from 
which is the last paragraph of your book which which kind of uh, to me you know sums up your book beautifully so so you end the book by saying securing human dignity and human rights in a newly evolving world order will be critical issues that need concerted deliberation dindyal's thoughts and ideas can act as lampposts in managing the agenda of the new world order human centric development the key element of integral humanist thought can become the sacred obligation of both national and global governance institutions 21st century world doesn't belong to globalists it belongs to patriots proclaimed donald president donald trump at the united nations in 2019 instead it belong it should belong to integral human integral humanists ramadaji uh, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you today uh, i am really grateful to you for coming on the podcast and and you know basically taking taking all the questions that i've asked and you know you do not tell me anything tumhe kushal jo puchna hai tum puchna main tumhari khushi se answer dunga so for that i'm really grateful to you it was a pleasure talking to you no thank you i really enjoyed this conversation thank you for this kushal uh, ji all right guys time to wrap today's discussion up the link to buy this book is going to be in the description of the podcast the, it doesn't matter if you're listening to the video version or you're watching it or you're listening to the audio version if you go into the description of the podcast please go in there i really insist all of you buy this book it is a fascinating book into the mind of the rss and one of its key thinkers uh you don't have to agree with everything they say but the point is if I don't agree with many things the RSS says, but there is one organization in India that actually seeks people who disagree with them and actually tries to understand them is the RSS, and that to me is the greatest asset of the RSS. I'll leave you guys today. I'll see you guys another time. Until then, namaste. Take care. Goodbye.